0: Conversation this last week with a man for about two hours who was from Nepal and we were talking about the Buddha. And he said to me, The Buddha was just a man. Well, I wonder what you think of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Napoleon Bonaparte said of Jesus, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there was no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But on what foundation did we rest the creations of our genius upon force? Jesus Christ founded an empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for Him. Albert Einstein said, I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers, however artful. No man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Theseus and other heroes of his type lack the authentic vitality of Jesus. H.G. Wells, I am an historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history, Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. And Fyodor Dostoevsky writes, I believe there is no one deeper, lovelier, more sympathetic, and more perfect than Jesus. Not only is there no one else like Him, there never could be anyone like Him. In a frequently cited passage, in his most famous work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes of Jesus, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that Jesus was and is God. I do not know whether Lewis had any particular passage in mind when he penned those words, but he could easily have been reading John chapter 5. Let's turn there. John chapter 5. This passage illustrates the validity of Lewis's statement as well as any in the Gospels. What did Jesus claim about Himself? If there's anyone here who is just neutral about Jesus, this message is for you. If anyone here is tempted to view Jesus as merely a great moral teacher or a great model of humanitarianism, but that's it, well, then this message is for you. I agree with Lewis. You cannot listen to what Jesus actually claimed about Himself and maintain that He was simply a great teacher or humanitarian. There simply is no middle ground regarding Jesus. In the words of Lewis, either Jesus was the Son of God or else a madman. So who was he? Well, in John 5, Jesus deliberately sought out a man who was afflicted at the Pool of Bethesda. He heals the man. The man was not even seeking Jesus. And Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, instructing him to take up his bed and walk. But this Sabbath activity deliberately offended the Jewish leadership who went to enormous lengths to really protect Sabbath observance. Now this man had been ill for some 38 years. He was perhaps a paralytic, we don't know for sure. Well surely if you've been sick for 38 years, Jesus could have waited just one more day till the day after the Sabbath to heal him, right? But Jesus deliberately sought him out on the Sabbath. Again, his was not an emergency life or death situation. Not at all. But Jesus did not wait. He deliberately healed the man on the Sabbath. And notice how Jesus responded when he was accused of violating the Sabbath. Look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now. And I am working. Now, can you imagine how offensive that statement must have been? Jesus claimed God the Father has been working on the Sabbath. Well, doesn't God rest on the Sabbath? The Jews had a distorted view of the Sabbath, and Jesus wants nothing to do with it. And we worked through these issues earlier this summer. Now, there is a second offense in verse 17, and it's the second offense that the Jews really are going to hone in on. When Jesus said, quote, my father, he implied that he had a unique relationship with God. He is God's son, if God is my father. So again, would you consider Lewis's point? Jesus said certain things about himself that prevent us from regarding him as merely a great teacher. You are not a good teacher if you claim to be the Son of God. Unless, in fact, you are the Son of God. Now, the Jews certainly understood that Jesus was making himself out to be God. And that becomes apparent in verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So, what do you think? In this pressurized situation, is Jesus just going to back down? No, no, you misunderstood. I'm not God. Or is he going to press his equality with God? What's he going to do? Well, let's read his response, beginning with verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. has not come in the judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. And come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Well, what do you think? Does that sound like Jesus is backing down? I'd like to engage in just a little thought experiment before we get into our passage. Just imagine, each and every one of you, that someone confused you with the Son of God? How would you respond? How quickly would you disabuse him of his confusion? How alarmed would you be if someone confused you with God? During my freshman year of college, I met an oncologist. It's a cancer doctor from Michigan on the campus of BJU. And every year he'd drive down to BJU and he'd spend a week just walking around campus praying for students. He does that to this very day. And there are quite a number of us in various ministries around the country that he has relentlessly prayed for for years. Well, a day or two after meeting this man, I was walking past an old payphone booth on campus. Now, some of you young people have no idea what that is, all right, an old payphone booth. It was a little glass booth with a phone inside, all right? And if you put some coins in the phone, little phone box, you can make a phone call, usually just a few minutes before your time ran out. The year was 1996, and there were no cell phones. Well, as I walked past that booth, I saw the oncologist on the phone, and he was just weeping in great emotional distress. And so I just stopped and I said, Is everything okay? Well, he had just received news that his mother was diagnosed with cancer. Now, believe me, I was not some sort of super spiritual freshman college student by any stretch of the imagination. But I did ask, Well, uh, can I pray with you? I didn't know what else to say. And I had earlier shared with him my own cancer story, and so the man was just eager to pray. And we prayed together. A year later, when that man came back for his week of prayer, I saw him again. And he remembered that moment when I, the cancer survivor, asked him to pray. And he said, you know, that just really, really ministered to me in that moment. And that providential prayer meeting he told me was more important to him than any medical help that he could get. And I was understandably quite shocked. And he proceeded to say something to the effect of seeing the grace of God or Christ likeness in my countenance. This is this is not a spiritual freshman, all right? I saw God in your countenance. Well, how do you how do you think that made me feel? Like flattered, spiritual, holy? I remember this moment. I didn't feel that way at all. I felt like totally wretched hypocritical. I know my own heart. You didn't see God in my countenance, I assure you. Now, I'm glad to be a blessing to you, but friend, I, I'm just a sinner. You're, you're delusional, I think, if you think you think God in my countenance somehow. That, that, that's how it struck me. Well, I'll keep a finger here and turn to Revelation 22. This is the last chapter of the New Testament. I suspect that you would just be as uncomfortable as I was when somebody starts comparing you to God. We should strive for godliness, yes, but how many of us actually think of ourselves as godly or godlike? We don't. Well, how about a holy, unfallen, bright angel from heaven? John in Revelation 22 has an angel give him a vision of the future. He gives him a vision of the new world to come when all the pain and suffering of his life disappears. And how do you think John is going to respond to this vision? Well, look at verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. So here is the Apostle John, and he is about to worship an angel. But how does a holy, sinless, sinless, beautiful, powerful, ancient being who lives in the very presence of God respond when a mortal man falls down to worship him as if he were God? Well, look at verse 9. But he said to me, you must not do that. Well, why not? Keep reading. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Well, friends, that is the immediate, the unflinching, unhesitating response of a sinless angel of God. Worship God. Don't worship me. That is the appropriate response for anyone who is not God. Alright? So with that response in mind, let's go back to John chapter 5 and let's work our way through Jesus' response. The Jews again want to kill Jesus because they think that He is making Himself equal with God. That's how they're hearing Him. Well, how do you respond when somebody compares you to God? How does an angel respond when somebody compares the angel to God? Friends, how does Jesus react? We have 11 verses between John 5, 19 and verse 29. And what I'd like you to do is actually engage each of these verses with the same question. Here's the question. What does Jesus claim about himself? What is Jesus saying in each of these verses? All right, this is a wonderful passage to go to when somebody's just really struggling with the identity of Jesus Christ. I would point them to John chapter 5. Who is he? Well, look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Well, what does Jesus claim about Himself? Here's what He says. God initiates Jesus' actions. Jesus is so utterly dependent on the Father, That quite literally, everything that he does, in everything that he does, he waits for the Father's initiative. Jesus lives completely according to the plan and purpose of God. God the Father initiated even Jesus' Sabbath healing of the man at Bethesda. That's what he's saying. Now, you and I like to think, at least to hope, that we are doing the Father's will at any given time. And you and I really struggle with that, right? Do I know God's will? Am I doing God's will? And how often do we slip up? And how often are we concerned that we are not doing God's will? Or God is displeased with us all the time, I suspect. But what Jesus is saying here is that He unmistakably and unfailingly does precisely the will of God. And that's because Jesus' will perfectly imitates the Father's will. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Well, what does Jesus claim about himself? God the Father so loves Jesus that he can reveal all of his actions to the Son. Well, God doesn't tell me everything that he's up to. But friends, Jesus is not like me. Jesus can be entrusted to know everything the Father does. Further, God can entrust even greater works to Jesus so that we can all just marvel at him. Now, Jesus has done some pretty incredible works already, like healing the man at the pool of Bethesda, But God has greater works yet to reveal. And to whom will he entrust these works? And the answer is to Jesus. Well, what kind of greater works might Jesus be referring to? Keep reading. Verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Here's our question. What does Jesus claim about Himself? In the Old Testament, the prerogative of raising the dead belonged exclusively to God. Who else could possibly accomplish such a feat? But look at Jesus' statement very carefully. Jesus does not treat the power of resurrection merely as a power given to him by God. There were actually others in the Old Testament who had raised the dead only only because God gave them this power. Here's the power, now go use it. But Jesus does not borrow creative, life-giving power from God. Jesus can, in fact, raise the dead by His own will. Friends, that is, that is truly astonishing. Imagine a man who said to you, I can will a dead person right back to life. Jesus quite literally makes His own Will equivalent to God's will. Put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of the Jews. When someone claims he can perform a miracle, I am just immediately suspicious, even if he claims to do so with power from God. But what do you do with a man who claims to perform extraordinary miracles, even raising the dead by his own willpower? It's no wonder, Lewis said, you've got to embrace Jesus as the Son of God or just write Him off as a lunatic. There's no middle ground here. This is a totally irresponsible, blasphemous, ridiculous claim, or it's true. Can't have it both ways. Now, would you put verse 21 in context? Jesus has deliberately journeyed to the pool of Siloam on the Sabbath. He had singled out his sick man, and he told him to pick up his bed and go walk. And verse 20 applies that context. Because God loves Jesus, He is going to show Him the greater works that He is doing. But what can be greater than healing a sick man after 38 years? Well, verse 21, how about raising a dead man? And that's precisely the greater work of verses 20 and 21. Jesus can deliberately journey right into a graveyard on the Sabbath. And Jesus can cry into a tomb for the dead man to rise and to come out. And friends, that power is not borrowed power. It comes from his own will. When we arrive at John 11, we are going to see Jesus doing exactly this when he raises Lazarus. Jesus literally will say of Lazarus, this is for the glory of God. So the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus equates himself with God as if they are both equal of glory. And now look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Well, what does Jesus claim about himself? Friends, if you go all the way back to the days of Abraham, the Bible recognizes that God is the judge of all the earth. In Washington, D.C., in the highest court in our land, we have nine Supreme Court justices. There are some 115 individuals who have sat in that court. William Orville Douglas holds the record for the longest term. He served for 36 years, 211 days. But Douglass' power was shared by eight others during his tenure. And it's been shared by 114 others over the lifespan of that court. And that court's jurisdiction is limited to just the United States, which makes up less than 5% of the world's population. So we think the Supreme Court is really powerful, but when you put it in context, it's really not that powerful. When you think... In that context, though, of the audacity of Jesus' claim, what is he saying? Jesus judges all men. Jesus alone judges all men. Friends, we are not talking about less than 5% of the world's population for less than one generation, God has appointed this Galilean man standing right there in the presence of first century Jews as judge over everyone. That's what he's saying. Is he insane? Is he a lunatic? Or is he telling the truth? You really must decide. But friends, you cannot call him merely a good moral teacher. This is not a good moral teacher. If he claims to judge everyone and he's a liar, Friends, why has God given Jesus the right to judge? Well, next verse, verse 23. That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Let's read those words again. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who We sent him. So here's our question. What does Jesus claim about himself? Well, God intends for you to honor Jesus with the same reverence and worship that you give to him. Imagine a 30-year-old Jewish man just making such an audacious claim. Imagine a man just walking here this morning 30 years of age, that's young. I turned 45 this month. 30 is really young all of a sudden, right? A 30-year-old saying, Look, God wants everyone to honor me. Well, the Jews were disturbed by Jesus making himself equal with God. Would you be disturbed? But friends, that's precisely what Jesus does. He he doesn't back down. He doesn't give up an inch. In fact, far from backing down from the Jews' accusation, Jesus just insists that, yes, He is worthy of the same honor with the Father. In fact, Jesus actually says something even bolder than that. Jesus insists in the second half of the verse that if you do not honor the Son, you in fact do not honor the Father. Look very carefully at these words. Whoever does not honor the Son, Jesus does not honor the Father who sent him. Friends, do not pretend to honor God if you do not honor Jesus. Jesus is saying that's impossible. It doesn't work that way. One of my great concerns with Christian nationalism, a topic that I addressed in the summer of 2020, and a topic that we gave some attention to on July the 3rd, is the average American's failure to embrace Jesus the way that he embraces God. I've been very, very insistent about this because I think it's a major, major problem in contemporary America. In fact, I, I think there was a deism, there was a heretical deism... That is invading churches that we've got to really keep warning ourselves against. And sometimes it goes under the banner of Christian nationalism. Can I, can I just say this as bluntly as possible? In God we trust will not do if you do not embrace Jesus as God. Look at the text. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Politicians do not run as atheists with hopes of getting elected. We know this. All politicians talk about God, but do they embrace Jesus Christ? That's what I want to know. God can be found in our nation's founding documents. But what about Jesus? Many years ago, I visited a Christian college in another state. I was not looking for another job, by the way. But along one hall was a portrait of every U.S. president. And beneath each portrait was a quotation citing a comment from the president that he made about God. And the display created an impression that America has always been this Christian nation because all of our presidents believed in God. But but I'm looking at some of those statements, and I, I, I know certain things about these individuals. And I am saying, yeah, but what about Jesus? What about Jesus Christ? This is a Christian college. What about Jesus Christ? Do you embrace him? Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Do not be deceived by politicians talking about God while ignoring Jesus. Again, the term for that is deism. Deism was the dominant heresy that the great awakening preachers in the 1730s had to combat. It wasn't atheism, it was deism. If you look at the history of the awakening, they're really preaching against deism. And they're insisting on the deity of Jesus Christ. Deism reared its ugly head during the American Revolution. In the 1800s, deism again had to be defeated by the preachers of the Second Great Awakening. Again, they're not combating atheism. Darwin hasn't even been born. They're combating deism. The view that there's a God, but we don't embrace Jesus as God. And I'm afraid that deism is every bit as potent and dangerous today as it's ever been. It pervades social media, the news, and political rallies. Embracing God without embracing Jesus. That's deism. So friends, again, do not waver. Just do not waver from the claim in the second half of verse 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Don't waver from that. Now look at the next claim that Jesus makes in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come in the judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Well, here's our question. What does Jesus claim about himself? To believe Jesus' words and to believe his claim that he came from the Father is to have eternal life. Well, do you want to live forever? Well, who wouldn't want to live forever? Well, if you want to live forever, you had better believe what Jesus says about Himself. You would better believe that He did indeed come from the Father. Jesus told a parable in Matthew of a vineyard owner who sent his son to check on his vineyard. And they killed him. The workers killed him. Well, what do you suppose the vineyard owner is going to do? Why would you suspect that God the Father would send His Son and then tolerate your rejection of His Son? He's not going to do that. And that's the problem with deism. Thomas Jefferson says that we are all created equal by God, which I believe proceeds to cut the resurrection and the miracles of Jesus out of his Bible, how do you think God is going to respond to that? How would God respond if you took a pair of scissors and just you, you, you cut the resurrection of Jesus right out of your Bible? Oh, but I believe in God. What happens, friends, when you embrace Jesus the answer comes at the end of the verse. You escape judgment. You substitute life. I'm sorry, death for life. Did I say that wrong? You get life. Okay, there we go. All right, you get life instead of death. All right. Now, what else does Jesus say about himself? Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. And it's now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Here's our question. What does Jesus say about himself? His voice will summon the dead to come back to life. Can you even imagine the audacity of anyone who would make such a claim? Were we all to gather together, every human on this planet, and collectively summon all of our mental power to call just one body back to life, we would all collectively fail. We cannot call someone back to life. Death is utterly irreversible unless, in fact, you are the Son of God. Now, Jesus does not speak merely of a future resurrection. The resurrection of the life is already here. Jesus actually resurrected in the middle of human history. That's what he's getting at here. Not the end of human history, but what does that all mean? I'm going to return to that question at a later time. But let's move on to verse 26. Look at what Jesus says. For as the Father has life himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. What does Jesus claim about himself? Well, the Jews accepted God as the source of life. The deist also accepts God as the source of life. Life emerges from God. But here, Jesus identifies himself, himself, as the source of life. You remember how John's gospel began? We spent three Sundays exploring three great truths. Jesus is the Logos, he is the life, and he is the light. The Logos, we were told, has life in himself. Scientists have long pondered the mystery of life. To this day, we do not have a satisfactory definition of what exactly it is. We recognize it when we see it, but biologists will tell you we don't know exactly what it is. But here's what truly sets us apart from the naturalist. We have a different source. When it comes down to it, you have precisely three options. Life came from nothing at all, which in the end is no option at all. Life came from lifelessness, which also is no option. Or life came from life. That's it. There, there are no other options, and Jesus is here claiming that he has life in himself. He is the source of life. My, my life is derived; it's derivative, like everything else on this planet. And Jesus has life in himself. That's astonishing. Now look at verse twenty-seven. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, what does Jesus claim about himself? Well, Jesus has already claimed to have all judgment. But in verse 27, he actually goes well beyond that to identify himself as the Son of Man, as the basis for his authority to judge. We'll return to Daniel 7 another time. But I have actually referenced this passage frequently. If you've been around here any length of time, you know that I've often gone to Daniel 7. Let me just summarize what you'll find there. In Daniel 7, the prophet has a great vision of God, the Ancient of Days, and he sits there on his burning, fiery throne. And God gives to the Son of Man authority to rule all the nations and this glorious scene in Daniel 7, just surrounded with all these angels. It's this beautiful, triumphant scene. And the Son of Man comes, and God gives Him all authority over all nations to rule. And Jesus is here claiming to be one and the same. He is that Son of Man with authority to rule all the nations. That's Jesus. And now look at verses 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Well, friends, after everything that Jesus has said so far, it's with some irony that he now says, do not marvel at this. Well, the truth is that we ought to be marveling at everything that he said so far. I mean, this is incredible. Everything that he says is marvelous. Well, certainly Jesus is not telling us that we cannot be in awe of who He is and what He does. Sorry, that was a double negative. But anyways, Jesus is saying something like this. Don't marvel at this. N- none of what I'm saying to you is too hard for me. Don't, don't you think this is too hard for me? I'm, I'm God. I'm the Son of Man. There's nothing to marvel at here. Because I am the Son of Man, I am just going to call people right up out of the grave. Some to resurrection of life and some to judgment. And do not marvel. In other words, do not conclude that Jesus' claims are so fantastic they couldn't possibly be true. Don't do that. If Jesus is who he claims to be, of course, of course, he is going to resurrect all people to life or judgment. Why wouldn't he? What else would you expect of God? Now friends, this is really a delightful passage to take people to when they're really wrestling with the question of the identity of Jesus Christ. Very often we're tempted to go to many different proof texts, and there's there's a place for that. But if you want to go to just one passage and just read through a passage with somebody who's really just searching about the identity of Jesus Christ, let me recommend John chapter 5. And just, just read it the way that I just read it. Just ask yourself a question at the end of each verse. What is Jesus saying about himself? And don't come away calling him just a great moral teacher. You can't do that. So friends, what are you going to do with Jesus? What do you want to do with these verses, 19 through 29? I think we have to conclude that C.S. Lewis got it Right. You must accept Jesus as the Son of God or you must reject Him as a lunatic. There, there, there just is no middle ground. The fact is, most people want to be somewhere in the middle. There's the atheists over here who want to say, yeah, he was a lunatic. And there's a Christian over here who says, yeah, I embrace Him as God. And there's all these people right here in the middle that you know think it's pious or good or noble to believe in Jesus. He's another Socrates, right? And what Lewis is saying is, there's no middle ground. Nobody can take this position. You either reject him with the atheist as the lunatic, or you embrace him. But there's no middle ground. The problem is our world wants to embrace Jesus on their own terms. I think we know this. They want a Jesus that they can mold and reshape into their own image and likeness. They want a flexible Messiah who, like a genie in a bottle, comes to do their own bidding. You know that's true. That's how people talk about Jesus these days. Jesus, I can mold him and use him, protect him, use him however I want. The world wants a Marxist Jesus whose singular focus is social justice. They want an entertainment Jesus who fills our bellies with food. They want a Jesus of health and prosperity who gives us a beach house, and a fast car, they want an American warrior Jesus who guarantees success in all of our military ventures. They want a political Jesus who carries elections in our favor. Whatever we ask, whatever election, whatever candidate, Jesus is there to prop him up. They want a romantic Jesus who comforts us when we lose a boyfriend or a girlfriend. They want a celebrity Jesus, a hippie Jesus, a healer Jesus, an intellectual Jesus who can just spar with Socrates and Plato. Friends, there's even a great deal of preaching today in which the application just tailor-make Jesus into a God who's just sort of standing by, ready to address all of our little problems and just make us happy. He's just going to sit there with us at Starbucks and sip coffee and make us happy today. That's that's what he's there for. Friends, there's, there's all these attitudes toward Jesus today. The fact is, there is one thing that we cannot do with Jesus, and that is we cannot mold him and shape him into a Messiah of our own choosing. And Jesus just constantly frustrated the Jews because he refused, he refused to be the kind of Messiah they thought they needed most. And they crucified him. In the end, everyone has to embrace Jesus on his own terms. That's on Jesus' own terms, not our own terms. And that's what C.S. Lewis was getting at in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with Mr. Beaver's assessment of Aslan. Do you remember this? Aslan was a great lion. Well, who wants to embrace a lion? Spurgeon said, a lion. Jesus is a lion. A lion is something that we, we marvel at a distance, but who wants to come close? Well, Susan said reluctantly in the Chronicles... I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So, friends, you either accept Jesus on his own terms for who he claimed to be, and you fall down and you worship him as the only being in the universe worthy of worship as God for you write him off as a liar and a lunatic, but there is no middle ground.